0: It's Saturday night, the lights are low, the music's thumping, the DJ's been landing solid tracks all night. I feel great, and I'm dancing like no one's watching. Because of course, nobody is watching. I'm dancing in my living room, watching the DJ in her living room on my laptop. Down the side of the screen runs a chat window full of emojis and written cheering that tells me there are 200 others at home in this virtual club, alone, together. Our cultural life was one of the early casualties of COVID-19. With the progressive bans on public gatherings, live concerts and theatre were essentially outlawed. As lockdown measures intensified, our ability to congregate and have any kind of cultural experience disappeared. Our online spaces have provided a safe platform to experience culture. But for an arts industry already in crisis, will it be enough to survive? Will this be a death knell? Today on Think Digital Futures Online Culture and the Future of the Arts, I'm Dan Butler.
1: It's the, my favourite thing is to play all night from beginning to end So start with an empty room with silence Start with ambient or a dub track and just slowly, slowly build up Ben Drayton has worked as a DJ in Sydney for 30 years People arrive, some of those people will know know me as a DJ and other people won't at all There's always like a little bit of resistance, you know, people are settling in and, you know, it can take like a little while for the groove to sort of settle in and then, you know, then people start to respond, then they start to respond better, I start to respond better. And the really great nights is just when, you know, magic happens.
0: Ben says it's these moments of connection in a time and space that he lives for.
1: And you just know that it's so good, it's feeling so great. It's only happening in this room with these people right now. Like the rest of the world, doesn't matter.
2: In general, non-essential gatherings of more than 500 people should not occur. We
1: agreed to further rules today uh, regarding indoor non-essential gatherings. Earlier, I announced the 100 limit. What's the impact on your income, Ben? Oh, well, it's gone. I mean, it's just gone. Um, I mean, it's. it's
0: Ben's been around long enough to see a once thriving nightlife scene here in Sydney deteriorate at the hands of gentrification and the lockout laws. But the current ban on gatherings has literally outlawed Ben's work and the work of artists all over the country, in person at least. Sydney collective The House of Mints and organiser Peter Schapofsky have thrown parties at clubs and festivals for years. Now, the party has moved online. Users log in to The House of Mints channel on streaming service Twitch and dance along at home and have the option to donate some cash.
1: And that's um, almost like busking. You know, people contribute to that and it's really nice and it gets shared around between, I don't know, I think there's what 10 DJs involved And so it's basically pocket money, you know, which is really nice. And it's Peter's motivation who's made that happen. You know, if it hadn't been for Peter, I'd just be doing nothing during this period apart from, you know, giving it away on Mixcloud.
0: Just as many of us have accustomed ourselves to Zoom meetings and online drinks, cultural events and institutions have made the digital migration.
3: Look, I think um, there's always going to be, love for live performances. Right now, we don't have the choice. So there has been such an uptake of streaming, sharing, um, you know, online activity that um, it it really kind of is putting the social in, in social distancing. And there's some incredible examples out there.
0: Meg Hibbins is a casual academic and PhD candidate at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's writing her thesis on live music festivals.
3: There's some some great opportunities. I mean, we can see things like museums.
0: We're
4: digitising books, journals, maps, everything you can imagine. Galleries doing walkthroughs.
3: Looking at uh, portraits online actually gives you an opportunity to zoom right into the details that you may not actually be able to do even in person when you're here. Um, Not to mention the classes and and other activities that are going on online. this time when we can't be offering our studio
0: classes in the studio, we'd like to offer you this opportunity of doing class
3: with us online. So, so people have really kind of jumped into the online world, really, with, with not a lot of background understanding. And there's, it's, it's been really successful.
0: It's a phenomenon born of a two-way necessity. Humans are cultural creatures. Most of us need some kind of artistic input to flourish. And of course, culture needs an audience. While state governments across Australia are relaxing bans on gatherings in the home, it's still unclear how long we might be disconnected from live culture. In the meantime, online culture can maintain the relationship. I
3: think the the biggest opportunity or the first opportunity is to keep connection with an audience. If you are an existing event, cultural activity, tourism attraction, um, maintaining that connection to your audience is, is vital. And when you can't do it in person, It's um, an obvious option to have a go at going online.
0: That need has prompted the rush of online cultural content. In many cases, existing content was simply uploaded and made available, often for free. This is especially true of classical institutions and theatres, who have hours of archived footage... As the hard economic reality of COVID restrictions became clear, it made sense to post whatever was available and quickly to keep that connection Meg spoke about. Cultural institutions have had to think outside the box to keep audiences engaged.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think the interactive stuff is what's interesting.
0: Liz Dufresne is a senior lecturer in communication at the University of Technology, Sydney.
4: So they've got those, so when it all first happened you had things like the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra that were just performing to an empty uh, concert hall which they couldn't do once the next set of restrictions came in because the orchestra were too many people in one room and for a little while then you get people using things like is it the Acapella app where you can have the same person in different rooms and you put them all together so everybody looks like it's a big Brady Bunch all playing together, you know what I mean? Um, but now they're inviting people to participate and do that and that's the type of thing that you know we've had community choirs and join in and stuff before YouTube orchestras and stuff before but I'm not sure that we've kind of had it at that scale before Um, and I believe that's happening in lots of different places around the world lots of um, musicians are doing it but also broadcasters and community groups are doing it as well.
0: Declan Green is the Artistic Director of Griffin Theatre Company. He saw an opportunity to commission
2: original work that responds to both the enforced distancing and the online medium. So the program is called um, Griffin Lock-In. Um, it was a partnership we made with our Google Creative Labs where we invited five artists to create works for live streaming with only a week and a half to, to make their works. Griffin's a 100-seat theatre in Sydney's King's Cross,
0: entirely dedicated to new Australian works. The Griffin lock-in program is a response
2: to the restrictions that saw patrons shut in and theatres shut down. I guess the the challenge we sort of gave them was to really think about dynamics of liveness as opposed to simply using it as a broadcast medium. So not, I guess, yeah, in in contrast to, I think, what a lot of theatre companies and artists have done in response to lockdown and the conditions of COVID-19, which has been like to put up existing recordings of plays or to live stream recordings of traditional theatrical works. This was more about going, how do you kind of harness the potential of live streaming to create dynamics of liveness that might be more similar to the um, kind of feeling of something happening in a room. The shows played over one week, one each night, and were streamed live via YouTube. All of the five works did, like, engage with the subject matter in a really, really interesting way. I mean, two examples um, that I'd pick out were um, Harriet Gillies and Xanthi Dobby's work, Pleasure Dome, which turned into this kind of interactive online orgy that the audience could just participate in, which was, like, certainly something that felt very live. <laughs> um, and then uh, uh, Rochelle Fong's piece, Thirsty, on the final night, which was like a kind of techno-noir detective thriller where um, she placed the audience as kind of like investigators of a hate crime, helping her kind of solve and crack the case. And um, it was almost like an online choose-your-own-adventure where the audience could vote and actually change the trajectory of the narrative. From the enforced comfort of their own homes, the audience not only became active participants in the works, but indeed were vital to the performance. It sort of reflected on more traditional theatre dynamics in a really interesting way because I think it sort of, I guess, revealed the fact that like these online digital works were deeply dependent on the presence of the audience and happening in a live way in a way that actually a lot of main stage theatre isn't. Like the fact that a lot of the time, uh, a lot of main stage theatre... You know, sometimes you can feel like the audience actually doesn't even need to be there for this to happen. Of course, it does for the sake of the actors. But, but other than that, if it if you feel like the performers are behind a fourth wall, not acknowledging your presence and trying to create a fiction where you're not all in the same room together. Yeah, it's it, and, and where the performance is built to be exactly the same thing every single night and the performers are never supposed to deviate from the script. I guess that was sort of an interesting question that came out of it, like actually how live is that compared to this work that's actually happening over the internet?
0: The Griffin lock-in program was a chance to look at a possible evolution, says Declan, and even to re-evaluate some of the more
2: restrictive elements of theatre as it existed before the crisis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the but that was one of the things that was super interesting to us about this: the fact that theatre uh, is has being commented on by a lot of people, not just me, has some real accessibility problems because um, main stage theatre is expensive um, and uh, far beyond the price point a lot of people would pay for entertainment in twenty twenty. Kind of in an age of very cheap, um, like Netflix and stand subscriptions. Um, And also uh, accessibility in terms of, you know, like friendliness for um, neurodiverse and uh, disabled folk. And obviously there's work to do in theatre, which uh, is a super important project about changing the dynamics of traditional theatre to make it more um, accessible for disabled folk anyway. But um, I think there's something in this project Program in the sense of saying you don't actually have to even leave your house. This is something that anybody can access and anybody can access for free or close to free um, that holds some real potential for ways we can kind of like rethink and renegotiate some of our fundamental relationships with audiences.
0: But it's not that these new formats, both streaming recorded works and interactive pieces, will replace existing theatre, says Liz.
4: You know, these arguments that if we lose one thing we'll lose what it does for us isn't quite true. We used, we had those arguments. We tend to have these t- arguments around technology. So, for example, way back when radio was became mainstream, people were convinced and a whole lot of you know theatres started to go under. People thought, oh, well, that's it. Nobody's ever going to go to live shows anymore because they can sit at home and listen to music on the radio. Well, of course that didn't happen widespread. Some things closed. Some things changed. But we just got more opportunity. We didn't get less in some
0: ways. Meg says it's human nature that will save live culture.
4: We are
3: social animals and we need that social interaction so I don't think it will ever fully take place of of those in-person interactions whether it's a festival or a conference or a dance class um, or a zoo visit it's It's really what we need to get through at the moment, and what I think it will do is I think it will there will be some long term benefits. I think that people are you know seeing and hearing about things that might not have normally been in their range of vision, and so there is certainly opportunity once the world turns the right way up to go and visit those attractions to see those um cultural exhibits, whatever it is that you've been engaging with online. I do think people will be I'm interested to continue that in in the real, you know, face to face.
0: If that is we still have the option by the time we're allowed. The current crisis is an existential one for artistic institutions more than most. Creative industries in this country were already under immense strain before the virus hit, but COVID has pushed them to the brink. Just two weeks ago, Sydney Institution, Carriageworks, announced it was entering voluntary administration. It's up to us, Liz says, to make noise about that loss.
4: Well, I mean, definitely it's important to let our governments know how much we value those institutions. I mean, we're in a situation where you know it's a rock and a hard place because the money that might be used to save carriage works is money that also might be needed to spend on extra hospital beds or to save on you know transport costs or all of that kind of stuff so it's really hard to know um what how things are going to play out you know and again as you say innovation is the key here because i don't think we want to necessarily say we don't want to get to a situation where we're comparing apples and oranges you know because a hospital bed looks after our physical health but a concert hall looks after and, and you know a gig situation looks after our mental health so we don't want to paint one against the other but at the same time i guess we want to say how do we make sure that everything's looked after and that we don't and if we do have casualties that there's a way to evolve rather than just have things die out and become extinct
0: the virus will change some things irrevocably Exciting new possibilities have emerged, but without significant support, it seems some artistic institutions are doomed to disappear, and artistic livelihoods with them. It will be a loss. If the last few months have shown us anything, it's just how much we need them. Ben is looking forward to going out again, and not just as a DJ.
1: It makes me feel better about being in the world, you know? But for me, my focus is being around music that I want to hear, crossing paths with interesting people. Like I, I know, uh, like all my dearest friends, people that I've been friends with for decades, um, we're all an unlikely looking bunch of people. <laughs> um, had, I have, had I have ever had my first encounter with any of them via you know, a grid on an on a app, for instance, we probably would never have met, we probably wouldn't be friends, you know. So being in that world kind of taught me, that, you know, there's a lot going on on the inside of people. And, that, and that's what I really want to, you know, they're my people. They're, I want to be around them.
0: Think Digital Futures is made with the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. This program is made in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. You can hear more of Think Digital Futures on 2scr.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dan Butler. Till next time.